Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 42 of the Kameno Voice. On this episode, I speak to the owner of Kameno Island Honey. Please welcome Jennifer Short. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kameno Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Kameno Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, Subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. On this episode, I got to speak with Jennifer Short. Uh, she's the owner and founder of Camino Island Honey. But before that, she has a background in veterinary school and before or in veterinary practices. And before that, she was actually an engineer. So she's had a very wide ranging uh, experience uh, level, and she's highly educated in the field of veterinary medicine as well as herd, um, uh, herd like herd uh, culture. What's the word? Immunity. Uh, but basically. She studied herd animals, so like sheep and alpacas and llamas she worked with. And uh, so anyways, fascinating background, has a lot of experience in uh, all of these things, and then took all that experience and eventually turned that with um, honeybees and started doing honeybee farming um, or beekeeping, I guess is the correct term. So anyways, this was a fascinating uh, podcast to me. She was super interesting, broke things down so that I couldn't understand them. Um, so that's always a plus. And uh, anyways, had a great conversation with her. So please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Short. Hey, Islanders, it's Brandon with the Camino Voice. And today I'm here with the owner of Camino Island Honey. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Short. Well, thank you, Brandon. It's nice to be on the podcast. Awesome. So before we get started with everything, tell us a little bit about Jennifer. Well, I am a veterinarian and a beekeeper. And now um, my job is being a bee veterinarian. It's kind of funny how it's all kind of come full circle. But um, I'm also um, on the Washington State um, Beekeepers Association Board of Directors. And, um, and also, we passed some legislation last year for pollinator protection. And so I also am on the pollinator task force uh, with the Washington Department of Ag, um, working on pollinator protection and, uh, and uh, getting more awareness for pollinators in general. Very cool. Okay. Um, yeah, my, my wife has some background because my brother-in-law does some beekeeping, and then she's grown up with farming and stuff. So she's been very aware of everything around bees. So I've learned a little bit from her, but um, I'm really interested to jump into all of this. Um, but before we get to that stuff, uh, where'd, you, where'd you grow up? I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, of all places. I'm a city girl. Okay. Believe it or not, I, I actually grew up in the city and, um, and I didn't find my agricultural bent until I moved out here to Washington State when I was a ripe old age of 19. Okay. What was it like growing up in Pittsburgh? Um, very civilized. It, it, it was a very different time uh, back then. Um, you know, 40 years ago, there was lots uh, more cultural um, relationships and attachments. So you had the Italian section and you had the Polish section, right? And you had all of that ambiance and all of that food and culture that went around all of those different um, diverse 
cultures. Yeah. And so, um, so it was very, very um, warm. It was a, a warmer time, I think, than what we have now. Okay. Got it. So then, um, did you live in Pittsburgh all the way through 19? Yes. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. Okay. So then... As far as like school and everything like that, did you feel the whole time that you were going there, like living in the city and growing up in that environment, did you feel like you wanted to be, like, did you get to do vacations that were like to outside of the city and you like really connected with that or was that something that was kind of foreign? Well, it it really was foreign to me until my father actually moved the whole family um, from Pittsburgh to the basin over there in Tri-Cities. Oh, nice. Yeah, and he actually took all of us together and moved us. And I'm the oldest, of course. So the whole family moved at one time. It was because uh, Pittsburgh at the time was economically um, failing, and he was a a truck driver, and he was having problems. And so he and his brother decided to move here to Washington and build houses in the Tri-Cities. And so I kind of got uprooted and moved um, just because of family circumstances. But once I got out there and all the wide open spaces, I was just in love yeah. with the space and the horizon, right? And I just could never get enough of it. And the animals just, um, I, it was like I finally found my home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then um, I guess during your time at, like in Pittsburgh, before you had moved, did you like... Did you guys have pets or anything? Did you have much interaction with animals? All we had was like a dog, and it was like a toy poodle, of all things. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, farm animals were completely foreign to me until I got my first horse when I moved to the Tri-Cities. Really? Okay. Yeah, I just just jumped in with both feet and said, hey, I'm here. It's the Wild West. I'm getting a horse. Yep. Well, that's the place to get it, for sure. Right. Um, so then uh, you said, how many siblings do you have then? Two. Two siblings. Two. Yeah. And my brother lives here. Um, he's, he's down in, um, the Kenmore Bothell area. And my sister is still in the Tri-Cities. And okay. she, she's a barrel racer. Um, and, and so, and my brother is an engineer. So we all found different niches. Nice. Very yeah. cool. So then, um, you had graduated uh, high school by 19. Then, where were you going to like a community college in Pittsburgh when you guys uprooted, or what were you doing? I actually had um, gone and gotten an associate's degree in engineering. So, I started out in engineering, um, like my brother. Got um, it. Yep. And then I, I wound up working out at the, um, in the Hanford area for Westinghouse Hanford. Okay. So I, I was working in engineering for um, about four or five years before um, the the plants uh, one and four had dropped out and there was no work left. Oh, okay. And, and so I had to make a transition. I had to make a decision whether I was going to leave my family and move someplace where I could work in engineering, or or if I was going to re you know retool myself. And so I decided to retool. Very cool. I got into WSU and I went into veterinary medicine and um, became a doctor. Very cool. Yeah, we have. Um, well, so uh, I actually went to WSU as well. Um, Yay! Oh, yeah, <laughs> and I I studied mechanical engineering going there, 
But nice. we, we had quite a few friends that were in the veterinary program uh, that went through that program while we were over there. And it yeah. was, it's an intense program. I mean, I watched them. <laughs> it is very intense. I mean, the, you know, they, they whittle it down from at least the, the year I was in, they whittled it down from 600 applicants to 60. So your chances were pretty slim and none to get in. Um, wow. And then once you did get in, uh, you were eating, breathing, dreaming veterinary medicine for four years. That's all you had. Yeah. No, and it was, it was crazy the amount of, like, the workload and, like, yes. you know, getting the internships and everything like that. Like, um, yeah, I was just like, that is a crazy. And then they were saying, like, some of the things they do, they end up doing like more deep dive into the biological and science side than even some doctors like well absolutely i mean you literally you know as a veterinarian um you have to study anywhere from 10 to 15 different species where a human doctor has one to focus on so um so there's a lot of um just information overload constantly you're just like drinking from a fire hose all the time and then once you get into your specialty is in the fourth year and i went into um i went into small ruminants which was completely unheard of at the time what is that i spent um a lot of my time over at the idaho sheep station so i i did sheep um goats llamas and alpacas and deer okay and so that was my specialty, and I studied um, – I actually went to Australia and did uh, sheep for six, six weeks during my senior year just to get a deep dive into sheep, which we didn't have here in Washington. So Very so, cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, we had a, uh, we had a friend – one of our friends that did go through the uh, WSU veterinary program, his first job offer was over in New Zealand doing sheep. Yes. So he was over, they were over there for, I think, a couple of years um, or like a year and a half. And they were, they were over there. So, um, yeah, that's really cool. I wonder, yeah. Um, Okay. So then that's what, so you were studying that. You finished up that. What happened after you got out of college then when you finally graduated? Well, um, we then moved to Colorado and, and for my husband's work at the time. And, um, and then I set up a private practice in small ruminants in Colorado and, um, and had my children and they rode in the truck with me and did practice <laughs> with me. And, you know, it, it was just the way, it was the way you worked back then. You, you did whatever you needed to do. And, and so I built a practice and, um, and wound up, uh, you know, just hanging out with farm animals for the most part. Okay. Yeah. So you guys, you had a practice over in Colorado. What, what part of Colorado? Um, I actually, my main practice um, before we left and came here to Washington about uh, eight years ago, I had a practice up in the north, um, up in an area called near Greeley called Weld County which is the main agricultural county of Colorado. And, um, and I did mostly alpacas um, and, uh, and a lot of sheep, as well as I had a goat dairy, and I did a lot of uh, organic dairy work. Got it. Yeah. Okay. What was it like living way out there versus, you know, you'd, you've kind of moved from city life to, you know, eastern Washington to Colorado? It 
It has, you know, it's it's kind of, um, it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, you have the benefits of being in an area where you have space and you can make decisions about how you want to live your life. And, and there's um, uh, relationships uh, with far other farmers. And so there's an extended family, uh, a farming family um, that exists. Yeah out there. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's the isolation and, and the fact that agriculture isn't supported um, at the financial level like a lot of other um, industries are. Right. And so, so there's always those hardships. And, and that's really what hit in 2008. Um, a lot of, of farmers in that county lost their farms. Wow. Okay. So were you... On top of having your practice, did you guys also have a farm then as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. We did. We we had um, a dairy farm. So, and then I had private practice on top of it, and then the two kids. So. Wow. Okay. So you were a little bit busy. A little. Not as busy as I am now with the bees, but. Oh. Yeah, okay. A little busy. Wow. Very cool. Okay. Um. So. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have thought of that with the with the farming during the 2008 specifically because I would have imagined that they would just continue on farming and producing and stuff like that. Is it was it because of the loans or was it the land ownership or yeah, it was the loans. Um, uh, it was the same problem we're having right now. I, I mean, it's the same catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're, we're seeing right now uh, where, um, you know, farms are mortgaged to the hilt and without income coming in, without being able to produce their crops and sell their crops and get supplies like seed and fertilizer and, and water in Colorado is horrible. Um, so without getting uh, be able to get those kinds of commodities, um, it, it will, you know, it's, it's a, a workflow issue and a process issue. Yeah. And those farms just shut down. And there were there were suicides. It was just a horrible time. Yeah, no the uh, the farming community again. Um, I grew up not really not super connected to farming and everything. Uh, but my wife, uh, she grew up north of uh, Cedra Woolley. Her parents had a small family farm, but she knew a lot of the farmers in that area, and um, has always been very connected to farming and um, is very pro you know farm and uh, buying local. Um, and um, so I've learned a lot about it from her. But, yeah, just the kind of the edge that most farmers live on of financially, like they're one bad crop away from not making it or having really hard financial struggles. Yes, it's absolutely true. The The family farm is is in trouble um and and it you know it doesn't need to be a political thing but at the same time um we certainly do need to look to agriculture a little bit um closer and and uh and actually support local farms right it's through farmers markets or co-ops or csas or whatever it is we need to support those agricultural entities or else we'll be buying all of our food from China. Do we really want to do that? <laughs> yeah. Sure. No, right. for sure. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why I think it's been really inspiring talking to people. Um, I don't know if you, you probably know Rachel Pigott from Island Harvest Farms. 
Um, yes, and then Ananda Farms, both these these people have started farms in the last 10 years. And yeah. um, it's just really neat to be able to see someone because a lot of farming is usually generational because of the um, overhead, not just the overhead, but getting involved in farming is financially difficult. And then there's not necessarily a big payoff at the end. Right. Yeah, you do it out of, it's a labor of love. Yeah. And it really, it intrigues me that, you know, I went to a women in agriculture seminar over on Whidbey uh, a few months ago, uh, put on by the uh, WSU Extension. And it was interesting that these women are really, you know, they're putting everything into these farms. They're they're in 100% and they're, they're really, um, they're starting from scratch because it's not like their family yeah. started this farm three generations ago. This is something that they've started from scratch. And so you know that the passion and determination is there, uh, the perseverance uh, of these people to go ahead and, and actually do something that has such high risk, but at the same time has such return on investment just for the psychological and an emotional um, way to go ahead and, and know that they are doing something for the greater good for people by growing good vegetables or good produce or good good um, beef products or whatever it is. Yeah. They're working their little hearts out to go ahead and make sure that people have quality food here locally. And so we should be supporting them. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing that uh, growing up, I didn't, I, w- I mean, when I say I wasn't connected to farming and stuff like that, like I was extremely ignorant, um, probably still am considered very ignorant. But um, my wife, you know, would introduce uh, me to like, well, there's seasons of things. I'm like, what do you mean? You can go to the grocery store and pick things up at any point. <laughs> <laughs> no, magic supermarket shelf, right? Right. And yeah. um, but it was it was one of those things that when we started eating food that was in season, you know, I noticed when she made dishes that were in season with things that were locally sourced. Um, uh, you know, the, it's amazing the flavor that you get out of that, obviously, versus, you know, just getting it from the grocery store from wherever, you know. And um, that was something that was super, like, I was like, oh, this is why it's important. Yeah, and you could, you, you're absolutely right. It sounds like your wife is really helping you educate. Yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah. She's a lot smarter than me, too. So. There you go. She, she really has uh, got her, her finger on the pulse of it, though. It really is about quality food products. There's nothing better than fresh green beans or carrots or yeah. beets out of my garden in in summer than me buying them, you know, in a supermarket where they've been sitting for weeks and who knows how long, right? Right, right. And things naturally degrade, so you have to take that into consideration. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's, it's really neat to be able to see um, the small farmers that have started even here locally on Camino, and um, it's just really fun to watch them grow, so. Yeah. That is, it'd be, it's really nice to to have that kind of an extended agricultural family, even even though Camino isn't really um, an agricultural base. Yeah. Um, it's nice that we have um, farmers here uh, who are doing it on a smaller scale, but but doing it with the same passion. Yeah, yeah. So then, <clears throat> you you guys, how long did you actually live in Colorado then? Oh, I lived in Colorado for almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
much different. Um, I I really I got tired of the desert. Is what happened to me. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, de- you know, Denver is a high altitude desert, like the basin is a low altitude desert. Got it. And so I just, um, I just decided that I had had enough of the brown, and that I needed to get back to my Pennsylvania roots and 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 go someplace green for a change. Yeah. And I'd always loved coming over here to the west side um, when I was in. Uh, the basin. And so when we decided to come back to Washington, I said, yeah, it's got to be on the west side. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. How did you end up finding Camino then? Um, you know, I had always um, on my trips here, um, I'd always been in love with the Skagit Valley. Oh, um, yeah. The farming and uh, and the beauty of it, um, it, you know, there's just something that just speaks to my heart here in this area. And so when we came um, and started looking around for some place to call home, um, I, I just said, you know, Skagit is where I really, really want to be. And then we had an opportunity to come out here onto the island um, where it's a little bit more isolated. And, and I, I liked it. So... Yeah, very cool. I actually live in Mount Vernon, so um, nice. yeah, so we we love we love the Skagit Valley, and um, it's nice to be part of this kind of whole community from Camino up, and uh, that's nice. Yeah, and I have a ton of friends and associates and colleagues over on Whidbey as well. So all of Island County, even though we're separated by water, it just doesn't seem like it a lot of the time because we we um, have this relational thing um, between the islands. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then, <clears throat> so once you moved here, did you know what you were moving back to? Were you planning on starting a vet practice again, or what was kind of your thought process moving here? No, I I kind of was retiring from uh, veterinary medicine at that time. Um, large animal vets uh, don't have a lot of a long shelf life. Um, we we tend to get beat up pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so when we came back here, my goal really was to go ahead and transition into my own business. Um, I just didn't realize it was going to be back in agriculture. Okay. I certainly didn't realize that it was going to be on an island and, <laughs> and with, with insects, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how did you end up getting started with it then? You know, I have to blame it on my daughter-in-law. So <laughs> <laughs> she'll love this, right? So I, I was sitting here pondering, you know, the meaning of life without agriculture. And, uh, and I had uh, been having problems with my garden uh, being not as productive as I thought it should be. And so it, it just kind of a lot of things kind of came together. And, uh, and she said, you know this bees in a box kind of like dairy you should try this <laughs> I, I thought what are you talking about bees in a box is like dairy right <laughs> and she said oh yeah you just go ahead and you harvest the honey instead of harvesting milk right and i thought <clears throat> okay that's a little bit thinking out of the box but let's let's see and and i did some research and and lo and behold, it yeah, there's like 60,000 of them in a box, and they produce honey instead of milk, and and I extract it instead of milking it, and it's a lot less expensive to get it out of a bee than it is out of a cow. 
<laughs> so, so it, it's, it started with just a few little colonies and now it's, you know, it's huge. It's crazy. Wow. So how many colonies do you have then now? Um, I'm running currently between 120 to 150. Wow. So yes. then, and, and, for for those who don't know, and including myself, um, how many bees is that approximately? Like, do colonies normally average a certain size, or? Yeah, they'll average about sixty thousand, uh, kind of at peak in the summertime. So you know, a hundred is you know going to be about six million, right? Something around there. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is insane, and my husband would agree with you. <laughs> Oh, very cool. So then <clears throat> how was it getting started then? So you, you start learning about bees, you get your first hot or your first few colonies. Where, where did it go from there? Well, it, it really is about um, doing your homework and being a veterinarian, of course, uh, really gave me a leg up on the whole process because I already had the medical and yeah. I already had herd health, and I already had uh, working with intensively managed animal operations, right? And, yeah. and so all of that um, really helped me kind of leapfrog over some of the bigger issues with growth. And so what I needed to do is I needed to spend time doing the research on the individual animal okay. and, understanding, and understanding the animal. And so I spent a whole year almost a year and a half, really studying um, bees um, and making sure I understood how they work, um, all the anatomy, physiology, the diseases. Uh, I went back to school, literally, um, with myself and, uh, and got an education in how to manage um, bees. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. So then... When you're when you were starting with all of this, was it something that, um, I guess, with bees, is it like are there a bunch of types of honeybees? I like I said, I'm not super well versed in this. Well, honeybees, um, Apis mellifera, is a certain genus and species. It's actually the European honeybee, and it was brought over in the 1600s. Okay. Um, by some of the initial settlers um, from Europe. Um, there are a lot of other pollinators here, not only in Washington State, but across the U.S., that also do pollination services. Um, there are a lot of native bees, like the bumblebee, and I think there are over 400 different species of bumblebee just here. Wow, Okay. And then, you know, mason bees and carpenter bees and um, leaf cutter bees, there are, there are a lot of different, there's a diversity of pollinators in our environment. Um, it's just that honeybees, the European honeybee, is one that we manage as, as humans um, like we manage dairy cattle. So we, we've chosen the European honeybee as actually an animal that we farm with. So it's an agricultural animal now. Okay. And we use it and we manage it exclusively to go ahead and either produce honey, to produce more bees, to sell to people who want to start beekeeping or who have lost their bees, or we go ahead and we do pollination services 
there are lots of different um, product lines and revenue streams for the managed honeybee um, that uh, different commercial operations and sideliners do uh, all across our country. Okay. So then um, when it comes to like diseases and stuff like that, what do you do to kind of help hedge around your bees to make sure that they're not as vulnerable for me, um, as a veterinarian, it's about stress. So I know that most animals can handle just about anything you throw at them um, as long as their stress um, is reduced. Um, their immune systems are very capable of handling just about any disease. Um, and of course, it's medicine, so you have to, you have to balance a load of, of uh, pathogen, and you have to uh, go ahead and balance the, um, the killing capacity of a pathogen. So okay. when you balance you know, how much of a pathogen you get and then how virulent or how, um, how bad that pathogen can cause damage in your system, um, as long as your immune system is in very good condition, um, for the most part, you can go ahead and, and your immune system will clear your body of any of those pathogens. It's when we're immune compromised is when we usually get into trouble. It's usually when people get into trouble, when they're either compromised because their immune system isn't working or they're so stressed that their immune system is, is suppressed or that they are elderly and or even the very, very young, you have it on both ends of the spectrum, where those individuals um, have immune systems that aren't working at 100%. Got it. So, so when you have those individuals, those are the ones you really want to protect from pathogens that are bad, right? Yeah. But, but the average individual, um, the average animal can handle the pathogens that, that are, they're faced with as long as their immune systems are in good shape. So what I do is I make sure that my bees are healthy. I make sure that my bees get what feed they need. I make sure that they aren't nutritionally stressed or environmentally stressed or stressed with an overwhelming disease pathogen. So I, I control the numbers of pathogens so that they don't get um, too much of a load. Um, all so, of those things. Yeah. So how do you control, like, this is like when you're talking about pathogens and stuff like that, how do you control the amount of pathogens that get, like, infected a bee or something like that? Well, typically, um, with the European honeybee, um, our nemesis as beekeepers is a tiny little mite called a varroa mite. Um, and that varroa mite, again, was brought over from Asia and came off the Asian honeybee. And that mite, because our European honeybee had never seen that mite before 1987, it's susceptible to a lot of damage that that mite does to it. Okay. Um, it doesn't recognize it like the Asian honeybee recognizes that mite and will go ahead and tear that mite off and, and go ahead and destroy that mite. Our honeybee doesn't even recognize it. Those little mites crawl all over our bees, and the bees don't even know it because they don't know what it is. Okay. So to go ahead and control the pathogens that the bees are, are exposed to, is about controlling that mite because that mite carries now I think it's 24 or 27 different viruses that kill bees 
So it's important that we control that mite so that we can reduce the amount of virus um, pathogens that the bees are exposed to. Okay. So that's what I do. I kill mites. Okay. <laughs> that's my real job. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then what's been the most effective way to do that without harming the bees, I guess? It's very dicey. Um, you're talking about killing a bug on a bug. So for the most part, um, it's about controlling um, uh, the kinds of things that you put into a hive that will kill the mite but won't kill the bee. So it's about dosage. Okay. And you have to be very careful about um, how you dose some of the, um, the things that we use. We use specifically, I, I use just organic acid. And so there are a couple organic acids like formic acid and oxalic acid. Oxalic acid is what you find in rhubarb. Yeah. So, so there are some acids that we go ahead and we vaporize in the hive that will actually go ahead and it will kill the mite but won't harm the bee. Really? Okay. Very cool. Yes. So, you know, I know since um, I've been doing, I work with the, I'm, I guess I'm technically on the board of the Camino Commons Farmers Market. Um, but I know that I think it was last season or season before there was a really bad, like a lot of bee farmers weren't, uh, weren't able to produce that year and that their hives either got wiped out or were really reduced. Um, was that all due to the mite? Yes. For the most part, um, if we don't go ahead and we don't control the mite levels in the fall, um, they literally infect the bees who are growing. See with bees, um, they grow two different kinds of bees, depending on what they feed them. So typically, their summer bees um, will only live between 30 to 45 days. And they cycle through diff you know, more cycles of, of summer bees than they do in the winter. In the winter, they know they can't grow bees um, because of the cold weather and the lack of food. So what they do is they feed the bees who are actually born in August, September, and October. They feed them differently so that their life cycle is extended. And so those Whoa. winter bees will live for six months. Whoa. Okay. So if you want to control how many dead bees you have in the winter, you have to control how many of those bees are infected by viruses when they're in the cells being developed. And that's in August, September, and October. So I'm pretty diligent about my treatment protocols in the fall to make sure that I'm killing a lot of mites. Wow. Okay. So it's just a constant like maintenance and maintaining and... Constant. Yes. <laughs> Hence the being busier now than before. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's crazy. It's crazy. Fall is crazy because I'm in there every five, six days treating um, every single hive um, until their numbers, the, the mite drop numbers are down below my threshold. And then I'll go ahead and I'll feel pretty confident that they can make it through the winter. And my losses last year, my losses were zero. And this year I was at about 10, 11%, which is unheard of. Wow. Okay. So then how do you actually know how many, like what your percentages of mites infected and not infected? You can do a couple of different things. There's a diagnostic test that you can do to go ahead and test for how many, the percentage of mites in your hive uh, based on how many 
um, that you get off of bees um, in a certain sample size. Okay. Um, you, you can also go ahead and, like I do, I treat, um, and that gives me a number of mites that hit the, the bottom of the, the drawer. I have a pull-out drawer in my hives um, called a screen bottom board. Okay. And so I will treat, and depending on the number of mites that I get on that bottom board, I know kind of what my percentage is because um, – 40% of the mites will be on the bees and another 60% are going to be in the cells making more mites. Okay. So, so I, I can do some, some calculations and I can know pretty much without doing the other diagnostic test. Got it. Okay. So then is there any way, like, is this going to be a thing that for the foreseeable future, mites are just going to be an issue for our bees or is there any point where the bees will start to like their immune systems will start to recognize the mites and the viruses and stuff. Well, we're hoping that we can get some genetic evolution, uh, accelerated genetic evolution going. And a lot of the, um, educational institutions, schools, mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of that research in developing what they call mite resistant or very hygienic uh, bees that will recognize the mite and take them off. So, um, so a lot of that research is being done. Um, Washington State um, Beekeepers Association uh, just did a huge donation to the new bee lab uh, in Othello for Washington State University. So uh, we're hoping that we can get more of that research done so that we can uh, get some, some bees, a better bee, um, that will go ahead and not need as much treatment. Okay. So that's kind of what we're working for. Got it. Okay. And then another question on this, um, and, and I don't know if this is in like conspiracy level or how much data there is behind it, but I've heard about that some of the bees are having issues with um, like kind of finding their way to stuff due to the way increased level of uh, uh, mobile signals and like radio signals and all that. Like, um, have you heard anything along those lines? You know, I I haven't. I know there's a whole lot of um, 5G conversations going on right now mm -hmm. um, about that kind of electromagnetic fields. Right. Um, and I I don't I haven't seen any research yet to go ahead and make um, a, a kind of a an educated um, decision or have a position on it because I just haven't seen the the data the okay. research. That tells me whether or not um, that is true. Until I see data, I, I, I won't make a you know a, a decision about whether or not I have a position. But um, but certainly we haven't really done enough um, research yet. I don't think. Yeah, well, it's it's also very new. I mean, we're talking in the last you know fifteen years or so that we've really seen this spike in uh, in what, signals. What's interesting is that bees do have. Uh, an electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. So, and that's how they actually sense um, the pollen. Uh, okay. The granules and things. So, so there is there is some um, uh, real physics behind them having that kind of capability. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out if what we're doing is interfering with that. Right. Um, and overall, as a from from your research and from what you have data wise, 
are honeybees throughout the U.S., are they at a good point right now or are they weaker than they've been in the past? Where, where do you kind of feel they are? Well, you know, it's interesting because I just did a presentation for a club on this particular um, uh, information. And it, and it really is um, the bees are are doing fine as far as managed bees. Okay. We are taking care of them, right? And we're replenishing our colonies every season. Uh, the beauty with the honeybee is that they have this propensity, this drive to go ahead and make more of themselves. So every season they want to swarm. They want to double their numbers so they can split in half and make more. Okay. Uh, so as long as beekeepers are using that natural, innate um, swarm reproductive uh, capability, um, we'll continue to go ahead and keep our numbers, I think, where they need to be in order to get everything pollinated that needs to be pollinated and get, get our agricultural um, entities uh, as far as having enough pollinators. But it's always a struggle. I mean, we're always fighting an uphill battle between disease and um, and adulterated product coming in from other countries. So our revenue streams are de- you know are, are depressed. So it it's always a struggle. It just never seems to be easy out here in farming. Yeah, <laughs> never the easy road. No, it's not. <laughs> All right. Um, so then what are some of the, or I guess, where do you kind of see as the future of, uh, Camino Island honey? Well, it's interesting, Brandon. Um, that was an easier question two months ago, right? (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) So, so now that I, I have to actually think about, um, that particular question and, and where we are, I think, I think that, you know, we're still alive. And we're still moving forward uh, at Camino Island Honey and, and Sanctuary Farms Apiary, uh, which I think is a testament to the fact that, uh, you know, we're just we're working hard. We're being determined. Um, it's it's not just a job. It's a passion. It's a mission. It's a calling. And so, um, you know, for for someone, for for a farmer, it's not easy to just walk away and call it quits because you're then lost. Yeah. You just don't have any purpose um, where you had this tremendous purpose um, just a moment ago in eating our country and making sure that children had good food to eat and all of those really important and worthy purposes. Um, you, you, you've lost that if you walk away. And so Farmers just don't walk away. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you know, I see Camino Island honey, and it's always been my purpose to be to be a, a leader, um, you know, an industry leader here in our local area to make quality product, to make sure that there were enough bees in, you know, in the in the local environment to go ahead and do the, the work that they need to do to make sure that everybody has um, what they need. And, and also to, to use um, 
use them as a, a an agricultural awareness platform to make sure that people understand environmentally uh, what it means for the, the pollinators not to have food in the fall and what it means to mow the dandelions. And is that really necessary in the fall when they don't have anything to eat, right? Yeah. So, so there's a lot there's a lot of of the environmental and pollinator awareness that I I think that we will grow uh, here to go ahead and and push uh, further. Um, it, it'll be nice when the revenue stream comes back. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it'll, it'll, oh my gosh! Right? I mean. Oh. Here's here's the other interesting thing. I'm I'm not sure that everyone understands, but I just I'm gonna work, I'm gonna put this out there. Here's the problem with um, bees and and the dearth. Um, a dearth is when there's nothing no uh, nothing blooming in the environment for pollinators or specifically for managed honeybees. Um, and at that time, um, there's nothing for them to eat. They will starve if there's nothing in their box for them to eat. Okay. And so managed beekeepers will literally go ahead and will supplement managed bees with sugar syrup because that's really what they're eating in the environment is all nectar is just basically sucrose. Okay. okay? So we feed them sugar syrup and and right now there's no sugar anywhere. Uh, you know, it just you know, just kind of confounds um, the problem on top of everything else. Wow, yeah. We don't have sales because people won't buy the higher and niche product like honey, but but they, they will go ahead and they will um, kind of hoard or keep more sugar than they normally would, which is causing the shelves to be completely empty. Yeah. So we can't feed the bees at a time. Fortunately, God has provided this incredible maple flow this year. So I, I haven't been impacted yet. Okay. Um, but we'll, we'll be looking at, uh, you know, the dearth coming up before Blackberry. There'll be three, four weeks here in, in May where we won't see much um, blooming. And so it's like, like I said before, Brandon, it's always a challenge farming. Yeah. And you always have to be with with farming and and beekeeping. It seems you have to always be looking ahead because by the time the problem arrives, it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah, one of the interesting things that um, that really uh, brought this whole um, uh, chaos brought out was um, that uh, the supply chain um, uh, logistics. I didn't have a secure supply chain because I was doing a lot of my sugar buying just in time. Okay. And so uh, when I went to the same you know store to find it and it was all gone, I realized that all of a sudden I needed a sugar inventory. And so um, business continuity and supply chain logistics. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I am right now. Uh, hitting all the aspects of business. Woohoo! <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, so the first one is, do you have a lesser known or favorite location on Camino that you like to hang out? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love the Mount Baker views. 
and I have several yards uh, that face that direction, and there's nothing better on a sunny afternoon than watching the bees come in and out with pollen and staring at Baker. I love it. Very cool. Pretend you have a friend coming from out of town. Uh, what would their first day look like here? Um, they would uh, get a lesson in how to suit up and what a hive tool is. Very cool. <laughs> have you taken many people on that? You know, everybody who comes actually loves the bees, and they all want to play in the colonies. So it's not been hard to convince people who come out to visit the, to go ahead and, and just suit up and get in. Nice. Quick question on that. How well do the suits work? Like, percentage-wise, do you usually, on a regular basis, get bees in them or not? <laughs> no. No, the suits work really well, provided, this is something I learned last year, provided you don't wear them so long that the elastic in the bottom of the jacket wears out. Ah. Once the elastic is too loose and the bottom of your jacket doesn't hug your hips, you do get bees in your bonnet. Uh, oh, okay. That sounds terrible to me. <laughs> yeah, it can be kind of alarming. Oh, all right. Who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? Oh, my gosh. Um, Brenda Wilson. Brenda Wilson is a drone pilot, ex-military, and she owns um, RC Die Hard, which is um, uh, an RC park um, over in Snohomish, and she uh, is here on the island. She's got uh, a travel trailer she's living in on the island right now and, and waiting out the coronavirus. Okay, very cool. I'll have to reach out to her. Yeah, she's an amazing lady. Very cool. All right. Lastly, um, if you could have a billboard on Kamano Island right as you're driving up the hill, what would that say? I'm a Kamano Island honey. All right. Well, thank you so much again for taking out the, uh, the time to talk with me today. You're very welcome, Brendan. It was a lot of fun. I had a blast. <laughs> yeah, I learned so much in this conversation about bees. So I'm super excited. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's an occupational hazard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Jennifer Short for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to kamenocommons.com slash EP42. That's kamenocommons.com slash EP42. Thanks for listening and see you next time.